UAB MedCast is an ongoing medical education podcast. The UAB Division of Continuing Education designates that each episode of this enduring material is worth a maximum of 0.25 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. To collect credit, please visit uabmedicine.org medcast and complete the episode's post-test. Welcome to UAB MedCast, a continuing education podcast for medical professionals. Bringing knowledge to your world. Here's Melanie Cole. Welcome to UAB MedCast. I'm Melanie Cole, and today we're talking about transitional and adult care in spina bifida. Joining me in this panel discussion is Dr. Jeffrey Blount. He's the chief of pediatric neurosurgery. Dr. Brandon Rock, he's a pediatric neurosurgeon and an associate professor. And Betsy Hobson, she's the spina bifida program coordinator, and they're all with UAB Medicine. Dr. Blount, I'd like to start with you. What are some of the challenges teens and young adults with spina bifida face when they're transitioning to adult health care? And what are some of the common medical and even psychosocial complications that they might face that make transitioning even more challenging? Well, spina bifida is a complex illness. It's primarily a neurologic problem that arises as a result of an error in neurologic development. So the children are born with a very obvious malformation at the lower part of the back that has to be surgically corrected. But as a result of that, that induces some problems in multiple other body systems. The legs oftentimes have difficulty, the bladder, the bowel, and then even upstream uh, in the nervous system, the kids have a variety of different medical problems that are managed all through childhood. Now, sadly, traditionally, people with spina bifida often didn't live more than 15 to 25 years, but successes in a variety of different fronts have enabled more and more spina bifida patients to live into adulthood. And in fact, at this point in time, there are actually more adults than children alive with spina bifida in North America. It created a real problem because we didn't have good clinics to care for these patients. They're very complex and they have their own unique uh, variety of problems. Some of them are neurosurgical. Some of them have to do with urology. Some of them have to do with orthopedics and many, many of them have to do with physical medicine and rehabilitation. So management of complex musculoskeletal pain, skin breakdown types of problems. So those are some of the medical issues, but of course associated with this are the important psychosocial issues that you allude to. These are people that pass from childhood into adulthood and have all the issues of that. They have the issues of medical complexity. They have the issues of fitting in. They have issues of, of self-awareness, of intimacy, of finding a place in the workspace and avoiding loneliness. So it's a, it's a full plate and they didn't have a good home within our medical community or any others uh, until this clinic was developed and evolved about 10 years ago. Thank you so much, Dr. Blount, for that very comprehensive answer. So, Betsy, tell us about the clinic and please summarize perceptions and best practices for care of adult spina bifida patients, but speak about the clinic and kind of how it came about. What's your role there? So we've always known that the best way to care for individuals with spina bifida is through a multidisciplinary fashion. We describe this to families as being like one-stop shopping. So the patient comes into the clinic and they see all of their providers in one location. Kind of the magic of this clinic is not just what happens in the patient rooms, but also 
what happens in the hallways and in our conference rooms because it forces each discipline to look at the child as a whole instead of just from their perspective. What had never existed is an adult clinic that operated in this fashion. And if you look at clinics across the country, they may have um, a physical medicine and rehab clinic um, and or a urology clinic, but never a clinic where all of these teams come together for adults. And so our goal was to mimic what we knew worked in the pediatric world and to take that model into the adult world. And so we were able to develop some really good partnerships at um, the UAB uh, Adult Spain Rehabilitation Clinic and with the urology department it developed the model similar to what we did in our pediatric clinic in a multidisciplinary fashion, which makes our clinic uh, the only one in the country that I know that exists in a multidisciplinary fashion for adults. Dr. Rock, as a pediatric neurosurgeon, tell us a little bit about the age that kids should begin preparing for that transition of care. Discuss how you serve the populations most effectively, optimal transitional age, essential services treatments. Speak to other providers here that may be, you know, working with these children and their families through their medical home and through their well visits and as they're growing. Speak about that for us, if you would. I think one of the key factors is getting this process started early. And that's something that has been recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics for several years now. We talk about transition to adult care usually around age 18, age 21, um, but the process really should start more around age 12 or 13, where every year when you come see your doctor, your pediatrician, there's some progress made towards transitioning to independent or adult care. Now, specifically when we talk about spina bifida, what we realized once we had this outstanding adult clinic up and running that Dr. Blount and Betsy have described, um, I came on to the faculty about six years ago, and this clinic was, was a really spectacular resource, but it also was, in a sense, a laboratory where we have this uh, group of adult spina bifida patients, some of whom thriving, some of whom uh, struggling a little bit, and we tried to figure out what we could learn from this, uh, you know, this group of about 200 patients. So we did a study focusing on factors that were associated with these folks getting out of the house to do something uh, or, or just staying at home all day. So we we were you know very pleased to see people who are working, had a part-time job, who were volunteering, who were students, and we compare those to the to the to the patients who had none of those outside of the home activities. And what we found for spina bifida uh, specifically, was that it really boiled down to two different factors, and those were education. Uh, those adults who had more than a high school education did far better, and bowel continence. Turns out bowel continence is a really big problem in spina bifida, and those adults that had uh, less frequent uh, episodes of bowel incontinence did much, much better. Now, that seems obvious when you think about it, but this was the first time that we'd really put a finger on what we need to focus on. We took that back to the pediatric clinic, and Betsy went on to, to develop uh, individualized transition programs for each of the children in the clinic, and uh, Betsy can talk about that a little bit more, but we now have a goal-directed transition program in the spina bifida clinic for each child and each family that focuses on what they need to be successful adults with spina bifida, and that for every patient includes something to do with education and something to do with bowel management. 
just to expand on what Dr. Rock um, is saying, when we initially developed this adult clinic, we thought that we had solved the problem of transition. We now had a location where adults with spina bifida could be seen, but what we quickly realized is that our patients were not only not ready for transition, but really not ready for adult life in general, and they weren't doing things as um, we would expect you know, 20, 25-year-olds to be doing. And so the study that Dr. Rock set up helped us understand what what factors were limiting them being able to do those things. And so it was important once we had that information to take it back to the pediatric clinic so that the next generation of young adults that would be transitioning would look a little different than the older group that had just previously transitioned. So we tried to take the information that we learned make an impact and take the factors that we knew would affect them and get that information to them earlier, starting at age 13, setting goals with them so that by the time they were 20 and had their last visit to the pediatric clinic, they were a more ready, prepared adult going into the adult healthcare world. And just to develop that one small step further, um, the development of the individualized transition program was something that we did here at UAB that Betsy absolutely spearheaded. And it's supposed to be similar and resonant to a familiar concept to many families with medical complexity, particularly children that are affected in their learning capacities, which is the IEP or the Individualized Education Program, which most parents have heard of if they have any children with any sorts of special needs. This is an Individualized Transition Program ITP emulating that so that it's thematically similar, so that it braces onto sort of an infrastructure that already uh, exists with the hope of increasing its uh, applicability and uh, utility for families. Well, Dr. Blount, I'd like you to expand for a minute to speak about what you've seen as far as outcomes and rates of successful transition. And you just started a little bit to mention other institutions or what has been happening Tell us why has transitioning these patients not been very successful around the country and what you've done that's so different? Well, it's been a problem that has been recognized for some time, but despite that, it's taken a while to get much substance underneath it. A number of places now around the country have begun to form transition programs and transition clinics, um, but Frankly, UAB was one of the first, and ours came out of a sense of necessity that we didn't feel that the patients and the families were getting the level of care that, that we strive to deliver separately and independently at each end of the street, which is to say at Children's of Alabama and at UAB. So ours, in a sense, came out of a necessity that we wanted to make sure that there wasn't a gap. And when we perceived one, we wanted to step up. So what are the problems? What are the challenges? Well, there's a multitude of them. First and foremost, pediatric providers kind of, in a sense, age out. The types of problems that evolve and the domain, the workspace, a pediatrician doesn't feel as comfortable taking care of a 25 or 35 or 30-year-old as, as he or she would taking care of a 5 or 10-year-old. Secondly, the adult environment didn't feel optimally equipped to receive these patients. These patients have a lot of medical complexity that's unique to a developmental anomaly for which they've received care for a lifetime in the pediatric environment. 
They adult providers are, um, in a sense, they're quite busy with their own unique, pro, you know, their own um, group of patients that they're trying to help and take care of. So, uh, an, an influx of new patients with unique problems uh, was it was and remains a challenge. Administratively, there's these these folks have had you know difficulties and challenges with regard to support across. Uh, networks. Many of these patients are very medically complex and have had a large number of medical procedures. And when they have private health care insurance, many of them have utilized the majority of their private health care allocated uh, lifetime supply so that a disproportionate number of these patients are on a form of public insurance, Medicaid, or something like that. And as a result, the, the fiscal realities uh, can be challenging. And these are the types of issues that come up whenever transition is discussed at meetings. I remember a, a couple of, uh, about a year ago or, or more, uh, Dr. Rock was on one of our, uh, was on a panel at one of our national meetings, uh, having given a presentation about uh, the research project that he alluded to, and it went to the discussion session. And I remember one of the first people got up to the microphone and said, well, that's all great, but how do you make this work fiscally? And those are realities. Those are challenges. And those are things that, um, that, are, that are real life issues for a, a number of academic medical centers and, and community-based medical centers. So there, there are real challenges, but uh, fortunately at UAB, we've been able to make it work out. Uh, and it's largely based on an interdisciplinary cooperative um, plan where the patients you know, meet. We meet with the patients in Spain uh, rehab center. We see them all there. They're all registered and the, it's, it's all coordinated centrally through, through UAB and we've been able to make it work. So there are a lot of challenges inherent in transition, but what's even more exciting is how this program has gone on sort of as a springboard for a model of what can be done within the UAB environment and transition is receiving more and more Emphasis and attention within our UAB community. This um, this was used as a model of how transitional care can be delivered, and UAB has um, emphasized this. And is now Betsy's position is now growing from just spina bifida coordination to Betsy's moving and transitioning herself now into she's going to become the uh, coordinator for transitional care. For multiple medical programs between Children's of Alabama and uh, UAB. They're building a program where there's going to be a medical home program for patients with complex care that will facilitate the coordination between subspecialty care and general medical care kind of across a spectrum of uh, complex medical illnesses. Thank you so much. Now, Betsy, that's absolutely fascinating what Dr. Blount was saying, and congratulations to you for all the great work that you're doing. What is the child's role in all of this that we're discussing, whether it's fiscal or psychosocial or the medical challenges, the physical challenges? What is the child's role in this transition versus the parent or caretaker versus you all and how you help to guide them? Well, I think the first thing is keeping the child at the center of the entire process. And in the early years of developing the adult clinic, I didn't begin talking to the individual about their own transition until about age 19 in preparation for them leaving us at age 21. 
what I learned very quickly is I had completely missed the opportunity to impact change by waiting until age 19. And so that had to become earlier in the process. But my conversations with teenagers is very simple. At this point, your parent has taken charge of your health care, and that's very appropriate at age 13. Your parent has reminded you things like brushing your teeth and taking care of personal hygiene, but you're entering into a phase now where you have the choice of how you're going to present yourself in public. You have the choice of um, what ultimately you're going to become. And so by empowering the individual who's ultimately going to benefit or not by these choices and reminding them early on that they are their choices is really important. That's why part of their ITP is um, each year, each individual patient has to set their own personal goal, something that they're willing to work towards. And I help them turn that into a measurable goal. With the parents, um, I use the analogy a lot that, you know, every parent has a tendency to be a helicopter parent, especially parents of kids with complex medical conditions. But if we can shift from being a helicopter parent to a lighthouse parent where we know where we want them to go, and so step back and just shine the light on that path. And so that's a joint process between us as a health team, you know, them as the parent, and then the individual child. And so there really are three parts at, at every stage. But I think the most important piece is recognizing, us recognizing on the healthcare side that we become part of their family. We're with them through every major hurdle, every challenge, every surgery, every life and death moment, we're standing beside them. And so we become very much part of their family and part of their problem solving. And so recognizing that so that at the age when they're leaving one institution or leaving one provider to go to a new provider, they can see it as a collaborative effort where this is part of our lifetime model. We always knew you would get here. And so we are um, in, very much in support of our adult partners and very comfortable in who we're handing off your care to. Um, you know, our patients seeing that from the beginning, I think is the most important thing to keep them from feeling like they're uh, being kicked out of one place or, or being shoved off, but that it's a collaborative effort. Such an interesting topic. Dr. Rock, and we're going to wrap up soon here, but tell us about your transitional program. Tell us about leadership and what you're doing, what your role in all of this, and speak to other providers, if you would, and what you'd like them to know uh, and what you'd like them to consider when they are looking at creating a successful transition experience. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, transition really has two parts to it. Uh, one is having a place for your pediatric patients to go when they become adults. Now, we are very fortunate here at UAB that we have an outstanding interdisciplinary adult spina bifida clinic. That's not necessarily the case for every disease, every chronic pediatric condition. So we still have work to do in terms of making sure that there is a, a place uh, for our patients to go, a medical home for these chronic conditions. And that's something that we're actively working on. The second 
is making sure that the patients and the families themselves are ready to make that transition. That's that transition readiness piece that we've been discussing. Uh, most of the focus of our research and our, our efforts over the last five years have been on that second part, that the getting the patients ready. And I, I'm, I'm very proud of what we've accomplished here with our individuals, uh, individualized transition plan in spina bifida. As we've taken this, you know, this show on the road, so to speak, and talked about it on a national level uh, with various patient organizations, the questions that we get are very often centered on the first piece: how do you get, uh, how do you assure that your patients have somewhere to go? And I think that's a, that's an important question that we all, as a field, have to reckon with. We have to start uh, with uh, those organizations like the Spina Bifida Association, like the Hydrocephalus Association, and with organized neurosurgery, things like. Uh, the American Association of Neurological Surgeons or the Congress of Neurological Surgeons. We have to show people that care for adults with neurosurgical problems just how important it is that they be available to take care of these kids as they're getting older. Meanwhile, at the same time, what every pediatric neurosurgeon can do, regardless of whether they have a good relationship with an adult practice and a place to send their patients, they can always work with their own patients and start getting them ready for that transition. Dr. Blount, next question to you. How do you promote access to that uninterrupted, developmentally appropriate conditional management and preventive care throughout transition? Please wrap up your portion of this panel, what you would like other providers to know about setting up a clinic such as yours and how how they can refer. Well, I think the issue with referral is mainly an issue of awareness at this point in the evolution of this particular clinic. We've had people come to us from a wide geographic area, well beyond our typical reach for our pediatric clinic. We've had people from the upper Midwest. We've had people from New England. Because there's such a shortage of combined comprehensive multidisciplinary care under one roof, we're following people uh, up and down the East Coast and Mid-Atlantic and have potential intervention scheduled for people, you know, in, in those geographic regions. So that bespeaks, I think, a, a profound need for this. So I think there's a little bit that's just so simple as just an awareness that we have a multidisciplinary clinic and that regardless of one's age or even stage in the process, that we can feel the need and begin to work the person into the process of an appropriate transition they don't need to feel that they've got, uh, they've got to have completed a complex series of tasks or something like that before they're first seen. We can get them in and get them seen and introduce them to this you know, individualized uh, transitional program that we've alluded to. So I think the first step is awareness. There's growing awareness nationally, but there, is not, there are not a lot of programs. There are programs, fledgling programs, a number of other places. Um, but I think the first step is, is really awareness that, that we can handle uh, pretty much anybody at, at whatever stage. We've got people in their seventh, gen, seventh decade, and we've you know, got people that just beginning the process at late teen years. But I think I would summarize by saying that this has been a very dynamic process. This has been a very um, we've learned a lot. We've laughed a lot. We've been sad a number of times. This has been a process where we've grown a lot. The main thing is availability and communication between subspecialties and primary care. The main thing I would say to other centers that are um, 
striving to do this would be that you can do it. It's just a matter of dedication and perseverance and communication and hard work, because those have really been the cornerstones of what we've been, of, of what we've done. It, um, it's, it's been a blessing to be at UAB and receive the support that we have from each of our individual departments. I alluded very briefly to fiscal issues before, and we've enjoyed support from our individual divisions and departments to enable um, our work in these places, you know, in the development of a new clinic, it's always, there's always challenges and there's always less productivity and things like that early on. But I think if you stick it out through those phases, this can become a very worthwhile thing. There's no question that more and more transition is going to be needed in the future. This is an increasingly recognized and emphasized area. And um, I think those are the cornerstones uh, of, of our success. And Betsy, last word to you. Since you were so instrumental in setting up this clinic, please tell other providers why what you do is so important and necessary and what healthcare providers should consider when creating a successful transition experience and monitoring adults with spina bifida. Tell us why what you're doing at UAB is so unique and important. I often joke that everything I learned about spina bifida threw out the window when I started taking care of adults. And that's when I really learned about spina bifida because it's been my adult patients that have taught me what we should be focusing on in the pediatric years. And I'll often say uh, when I talk about transition nationally, I'll say if this pediatric providers, we pat ourselves on the back and say, we got this entire population living into adulthood, look at us but we don't do the hard work to get them ready for adulthood and help them live successfully in adulthood, then what have we really done to help them? And so I think having the opportunity to not just see the adults, but to see the providers who are taking care of those patients, to hear the hard stories, to hear the stories of what the things that happened to them in their pediatric years from a healthcare standpoint, what that looks like on the adults that are showing up um, that really impacts the kind of care that you give and where you put your emphasis and where you put your focus. And, and I think it provides a different level of education than you can get any other way. We've now been doing the adult spina bifida clinic for over 10 years. And, and like Dr. Blount said, we've learned a whole lot in that time period. And I would say that it has shaped and changed each one of us and, and made us better at what we do. Um, it's been my greatest uh, joy and accomplishment to be able to provide that service. I certainly didn't come into this role as an expert in transition, um, but through a necessity and through having passion for my patients and wanting them to the next generation of patients to look better has, um, has what's grown out of that is a really successful program that now we're able to use as a springboard for all patients with complex conditions. And um, there's a new transition cl clinic starting in September um, called the STEP program, which is staging transition for every patient. Referrals will be able to uh, start happening in the next couple of weeks for that clinic so that we can use what we've learned in spina bifida and share it with all of the groups. Um, transition's not unique to spina bifida. It, it applies to every patient with complex conditions. And so using this information and growing it in other programs um, is, is what I'm excited to see in our next decade of work. 
Thank you so much, all of you, for joining us today, telling us about the clinic and sharing your incredible expertise. A community physician can refer a patient to UAB Medicine by calling the MIST line at 1-800-UAB-MIST. And that concludes this episode of UAB MedCast. For more information on resources available at UAB Medicine or to refer your patient, please visit our website at uabmedicine.org physician. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and all the other UAB Medicine podcasts. I'm Melanie Cole.